So what we did last time is we finished up uh, John 17 with the Lord's Prayer. And today we're going to look at another one of the Lord's Prayers before the crucifixion, right? Before the arrest. And, and I say uh, one of his, his, really his last major prayer, because when Jesus was on the cross, he spoke to the Father. So on a technicality, anytime you speak to God, it's prayer, right? But this one is one of the, the last ones, and this is an intense prayer. And as we look at this prayer, we're going to see eight points of parallel between the Lord's intense prayer and really our intense prayers, because we have them. Uh, and hopefully reflect on these eight points and just see where we fit in when we have communion with God. And what we learn is that this is not uh, a big idea to, when prayer, you know, people have this idea that, you know, you pray just to get a bunch of stuff from God. But really, it's designed to help us to open up our lives and have God's will come into our lives, to open that door. And then we find real peace and security in that. Now, not everybody gets that. Not everybody wants to trust and wants to just know that God has their best interest at heart and they're just going to, you know, just trust him with their lives. Kind of reminds me of the hiker who he's hiking up the side of a mountain and he, he comes in contact with some gravel and some loose dirt and he starts to slide down the mountain, right? And it's, it's a steep mountain and just below him is like a few hundred feet that he's going to, you know, hit the, the ground and splat with. So what happens is just before he goes off the mountain, he grabs this little weak kind of shrubbery and he's, he's kind of holding on for dear life. And then he's, he's there dangling and, and terrified. And he looks up and he says, is there anybody up there? And a calm, powerful voice says, yes, there is. <laughs> so he gets religious all of a sudden and he's kind of holding on and he goes, well, uh, can, can you help me? Can, can you help me? And the voice says, yes, I can. You have to trust me and you have to let go of the shrubbery and everything will be just fine. So there's a little tense, there's a little pause and the guy looks up and he goes, well, is there anybody else up there that I can speak to? <laughs> we don't always like the answer that we get, but we have to learn to trust God with our lives. So what I'm going to do is go into John 18 just to hit two verses and then we're going to finish the rest of it in Matthew. So John 18, now this is a transition from his prayer in in John 17. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with the disciples over the brook Kidron, and there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So we see this transition. John is actually going to go into the arrest of Christ. However, Matthew goes into a little bit more detail with this prayer that I'm going to speak about. John, in, in John 17, this prayer for the disciples and prayer for future believers, and we covered this. Okay? So, but before that arrest, Jesus prays earnestly in, in Matthew 26. But I want to talk to you about the geography as well. As you go into the old city of Jerusalem, And you go east over the brook Kidron. In a few hundred yards, you'll run into this Garden of Gethsemane. It's actually at the foot of what we would know as the Mount of Olives. And it's called the Mount of Olives because of the olive groves that lined the area. And the Garden of Gethsemane was probably at the foot of that mountain 
where they would take the olives and press them and make olive oil with. Now, Gethsemane means oil press. And this is significant because of Jesus being pressed. And we'll come back to that. So the first thing we notice is that Jesus prayed in a remote place. The Bible tells us that he often went there with his disciples. And I'll tell you this, that there's really no wrong way to pray. You can pray a prayer of desperation. You can pray when you're driving in your car and there's nobody else in the car with you. Uh, You can pray in, in many different ways. You're just talking to God. However, there's something to be said for, at times, just having that personal you know, prayer without distractions. And that's where Jesus was. And we have to keep that in mind too, because if we're really going to listen to God and we're going to hear him speak to us, then there really should be no distractions. God's not going to compete for anyone's attention. And Matthew, let's go to Matthew 26, starting with verse 36. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, and their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, he who betrays me is at hand. So Jesus takes James, John, and Peter with him. He wants them to pray with him. He wants them to watch with him. And you could say that Jesus was in a swivet. He was in an extreme agitated state. And this is hard for us to concept. You know, we we look at Jesus as fully God and fully man. Well, let's just try to put ourselves in his shoes for a moment. As fully God, really was an injustice that he had to bear my sins, let alone yours and everyone who's ever lived. This is God, pure, holy, perfect. So there's an injustice that's, that's being carried. A miscarriage of justice, but God did it because he loved us. The other thing we see is that he's a man. He's going to be subject to great physical and spiritual trauma. So the second point that we look at is that he says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup? Well, I'm going to take this trio in order of the most, um, the most offensive and start whittling it down to the least of the three. So the first one is the fact that he had to bear the sin penalty of mankind. That's the worst. Second thing we look at is while he's on the cross, there's a separation at some point between God the Father and God the Son. Again, when we study the Trinity, it's a hard concept to look at. 
because it, it doesn't seem to make sense to us. But this is how offensive sin is. God the Son had to pay that penalty for us. The third thing we look at is the fact that he had to go through this really torture of the crucifixion. But I submit to you that the crucifixion torture was the last out of the three. And we know that in all three, that God never experienced this before as far as we know in all of eternity and never will again. But this shows us two things, and I just want to encourage you with this, is number one, that whatever we're going through, and if you've come here and you're bearing a burden and you're going through something, uh, then this should really minister to you. Because whatever cup that you're bearing right now, the Lord's cup was far greater. You know, we might have a little teacup, and the Lord's cup was like a 60-ounce big gulp. I mean, what he went through does not compare. Can't compare what we're going through. Hopefully that'll mitigate what you're going through. The second point that we have to look at is the fact that he loved us so much that he bore this cup. He didn't have to. God could have started all over again. He's got all of eternity. He's got plenty of time on his hands. However, he chose to redeem us instead of throw us away and start all over again. So the second point is this this cup, right? And hopefully this will help us to understand the love of God better. The third point, verse 41, is when speaking to his disciples, he said to them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Let me also encourage you this morning. As believers, we become born again, we become saved, we're born again of the spirit. We want to please God. And we want to do the right thing. Maybe listen to a sermon, determined to change. And as we walk out the door and we go to the diner, we start to go into our, we start to revert to our old self again. And that can be very frustrating when we want to please God. The disciples fell too. They stumbled. But the really neat thing is that God, he, he kept giving them chances to, to pick it up. And they became a great pillars of the early church. I want to read to you a scripture in Romans 7, starting with verse 14, if you turn there. And this is from the Apostle Paul. Romans 7, 14, where the Apostle Paul really bears his heart here. And he speaks about how we really have two natures. We're born with a fleshly nature, but when we're born again, now we have a, a spirit nature. So, believe it or not, in a way, there was almost more harmony before we were saved because we just were doing evil all the time. We just were constantly rebelling against God. We were uh, violating his laws every day and maybe not even knowing it. So there was a kind of uniformity of what we did. But then when we become born again, we have a new nature. Right? So they're both kind of competing here. And it says this, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. 
I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. When we say at times, especially as new believers starting to grow, why am I still not over this? Or years go by, and you know the Lord's doing a great work in your life, and there's still one thing that you just keep struggling with. Well, here's the answer. And I liken it to, my pastor told me it was like two dogs, two strong dogs. And the, the stronger dog would be the one that you fed more. I also look at it like two armies that war against each other, because that's what the scripture says, they war against each other. Which army are you going to supply? That's the army that will be victorious. I'm a little bit of a history buff. The, the German Sixth Army in World War II was feared by the Allies, especially the Russians. They were terrified as they moved east in Operation Barbarossa. What caused the collapse of the German Sixth Army was the fact that their supply lines were cut by the Russians. It was a pincher attack. The air bridge was no longer, and that army was now defeated by the Russian soldiers. So one army is the flesh. One army is the spirit. And when they do battle, our will is the thing that gives them the supply chain. And the question is, which one are we going to supply? Because it's a choice. It's a choice. I can tell you this, that when we're in the world, we just do what the world does, no problem. And when we're born again, we have a new nature. Okay? And they war against each other. The fourth point I'm going to read in Luke 22, verse 44. Luke adds a little bit more in this, this intense prayer that Jesus has. It's just one verse. And while Jesus is praying, this is what's happening. It says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, this is a condition in medicine called hematohydrosis, where under extreme stress, your capillaries can actually break, and if you're sweating, the ones by the sweat glands, it mixes with the sweat, and you start to bleed almost like a pinkish fluid. It's a mixture of sweat and blood. Now, I'm not sure if that was happening, but certainly this was a stressful situation. Remember, Gethsemane means oil press. And the Lord was certainly being pressed by this situation. And there's going to be times in our lives where we're pressed. Maybe this week, maybe last month, maybe last year, maybe something that's in front of you that's really daunting, and you're being pressed. You know, we're, 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 our prayers can be a, comp- a combination, sometimes in good times, of supplication, and then sometimes exasperation, depending what the situation is. I will tell you this, that before I was born again, my prayers were only exasperation. You know, I would live my life because I wasn't saved. I would do whatever I wanted. And when I was really in trouble, I knew there was a God, you know, sort of like the guy hanging from the bush. I would call out and cry out to him, and he didn't always answer my prayers. And when he didn't, I became apoplectic. You know, I became just enraged about the whole thing, like he owed me something. But the truth is, he didn't owe me anything. We didn't have a relationship. See, with relationship come benefits. 
And I've heard people say that. I prayed once and God didn't listen, so I don't want to have anything to do with him. What if that was a human relationship? We'd have no friends. We wouldn't be married. Um, we wouldn't have no, any relationship with our children if that's the way we, and we treat God worse. That's something to consider. Let's talk more about pressing and squeezing. Number one, when the Lord Jesus was pressed, what came out of him? Only good things. The more he was squeezed, the more he was determined to go to the cross and die for yours and my sins. Okay, so good things came out of him. Second thing that we look at in Revelation 2 was the church of Smyrna. The word Smyrna is synonymous with myrrh. And myrrh is very interesting because it comes from the Kamaphora myrrh tree. And this myrrh, it, it has multiple uses as an anesthetic, as a, a fragrance, and many different things. And what they do to this tree, this is amazing, is the harvesters actually take knives and they strip away the bark. They wound the tree. And the tree starts to ooze this myrrh, this, this kind of gelatinous fluid, this oleoresin that comes out of it, and they start to harvest it. Kind of sad for the tree. I mean, if you ever feel sorry for a tree, it definitely now is the time, you know, to be purposely wounded in many different areas to harvest this stuff, right? So to be wounded or to be pressed or to be squeezed, to be crushed. In the church of Smyrna, Smyrna was known as the persecuted church. And what would happen? This was roughly the period between 100 and 313 AD that the believers in that church were brutally uh, targeted by the Roman government because of their faith. But Jesus likened them to this, this myrrh, this fragrance. When it was squeezed, good things came out of it. There was a good fragrance that came out of it. As a matter of fact, when Jesus spoke to the seven churches, pretty much the churches of different time periods and characterizations of churches today as well, we can fall into different categories. There was only two churches out of the seven that Jesus said good things about and nothing negative. One was Philadelphia and the other one was Smyrna. The other five had horrible things that Jesus said, you guys got to clean up. And it's funny because the, the Smyrnans saw themselves as poor, the Bible says. They saw themselves as persecuted. And maybe they looked in the mirror if they had him back then and said, you pathetic thing. You know, look what we're going through. This is a horrible existence. However, Jesus said to them, he said to them, you are rich. You lack nothing. He said nothing negative about them. So Jesus saw them in a different light than they saw themselves. But when they were persecuted and squeezed, they continued to give off a good spiritual fragrance. Now, the third point. Trials are going to happen to us as well. So my question is, what happens to us when we go through trials? How do we smell? We'll play on words there we can have fun with. Let me digress for a moment. I had a friend who had um, an, some kind of, he, he caught this skin infection, and he had these boils, a few boils on his skin. Some of them had to be lanced by the doctor, but I remember him, this is kind of gross, who had breakfast this morning? <laughs> he had to squeeze the pus out and the, the white and the, the dirt, and it had to be debrided, and it had to be milked and milked and milked until red, clear blood came out. Had to get rid of that infection. Had to continue to be squeezed to get the bad stuff out first so the good stuff and the healing could flow. little analogy there. God is allowing many sitting here right now, and I don't know your stories, he's allowing you to be squeezed. He's allowing you to go through difficult times. And in order for good to come out every time you're squeezed, he's got to get the infection out. 
He's got to get the junk out. He's got to get the bad stuff out first so the healing can take place. Are you following me? Eventually, the, when we are squeezed, what comes out makes us look more and more like our Lord and Savior. And he's our, our primary example. Anytime he was squeezed, only goodness came out of him. Now, I want to read 2 Corinthians 2, three verses. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. It says, now thanks, this is again the, the Apostle Paul, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are, being, who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death to death and to the other the aroma of life to life and who is sufficient for these things. Again, this spiritual analogy of a smell, a fragrance, when you give the gospel and the truth of God's plan of salvation to a person and they become saved and you give them continuing the, the word of God, you're the aroma of life, you're the fragrance of Christ. Spiritually, you smell great to them. However, to someone who's perishing and they keep hearing the truth and they keep hearing the gospel and they keep saying maybe another time and they keep rejecting it, you're the fragrance of them to death, of death to death. And... Um, question is, what do we smell like? I don't mean this morning. I don't mean when you've worked hard in the summertime out in the yard. I mean, what do we smell like spiritually when we're squeezed? Do we smell good spiritually where others want to be around us and say, wow, how do you do that? You know, I want what you have. Or do we smell where people don't want to be around us because it's offensive? These are things that we have to look at. The fifth point. And this is found in, in verse 39 and 42, going back to Matthew 26. It wasn't long in this prayer before Jesus said, not my will, but thy will. It wasn't long. Maybe a minute, maybe 30 seconds. Certainly, if there was another way, could this cup pass? That would be great. However, if there isn't, not my will, but thy will. The Lord Jesus gave us an example of obedience and one that we should follow. He showed us in the end, even when we kick and scream, and we do. Who hasn't in prayer been frustrated with God? Come on, let's be honest. Who hasn't been on their knees? Who hasn't been crying their eyes out? Who hasn't been frustrated by what's going on and unfolding before them? But at the end, we have to come to the conclusion that, Lord, not my will, but thy will, just like Jesus did. Talked about last Sunday that prayer is not a celestial wish list or imposing our will upon a sovereign God, but to open ourselves for God's will to be done in our lives. And I think that as we're on the fifth point, we've got a few more to go. We'll get our scorecards out. We can see, how am I doing? Because the truth is, in the fifth point, when we finally learn what it is to yield ourselves to God's will and to trust Him, that's where peace and serenity come from. That's where that peace that surpasses all understanding comes from. When we finally trust him and yield to his will. The sixth point. The disciples failed in a major way, and we'll see that next Sunday or the following Sundays. But they also prevailed 
spiritually. They failed, but they eventually prevailed. And similar to the disciples, we're going to fail. We're going to fail multiple times. Sometimes we're going to fail multiple times in the same area. But we can be overcomers. God says that. He says that. In Christ, we're overcomers. We're victorious. We can be. That is attainable to us. In the world, it just gets frustrating. What do you do after you fail a few times? You quit. You quit. You move on. You cut your losses. You cut bait and you move on. In Christianity, God gives us the opportunity and says, it's attainable. It's available. I see that you're failing. I'm here. You know, trust me on this one. And that should be encouraging to us. The seventh point. The last time he finds them, they're sleeping. <laughs> you know, he really could love the camaraderie and the encouragement, and he's, he ends up doing this whole thing by himself. Even with James, John, and Peter, who were there through some incredible things, uh, he comes back and they're sleeping again. However, at some point, according to the other Gospels, when you take them together, at some point he just lets them take their rest. He just, okay, he doesn't even bother trying to wake them up at that point. Uh, he lets them get their rest until, you know, the tortures and tortures and the lanterns and everybody comes into the garden, you know, and cause a commotion. And then he wakes them up and says, uh, my betrayer is at hand. So my question is, are we asleep spiritually? Is the American church asleep spiritually? Will the world turn to the church in times of crisis? It won't turn to a sleeping church, I'll tell you that. And I'll tell you this as well, that as I read through the scripture in end times, in eschatology, in end times prophecy, it seems that the Western church becomes irrelevant at that point. So you can, we can kind of answer the question there. However, we still have a personal responsibility. Just because the church may fail in many areas, just because there's so much stuff getting into Christianity and it's really diluting it, just because many ministries are preaching another gospel and another Jesus, it doesn't mean we throw our hands up. Every person in this room has a personal responsibility. Don't worry about what they're doing collectively. God always had a remnant. Do you want to be part of the remnant? That awesome remnant? Or do you want to just be what everybody else is doing, just going off the cliff? And I mean Christians as well. We have personal responsibility. Jesus often warns his believers in the scripture, be what? Vigilant. Be awake. Be sober in our spiritual attitudes and our relationships. The eighth point. And I saved what I believe is one of my favorite points for last because it's a real major source of encouragement. Listen, when I was going through the scripture, you know, we just go through the Gospels and it's really neat because you really get to know God's Word. But God changed the subject on me last week and I know that some of you are going to come up to me and say, that really spoke to me because I'm going through that. God just changed my channel. He said, I don't want you finishing John right now. I want you to go to Matthew. I want you to talk to them about my son's intense prayer. And I want you to make a parallel to their lives. That happens sometimes. I love it. Okay, Lord, you know, <laughs> let's do it. And then Satan got in the microphone and you know how it goes. But <laughs> let's turn for our last scripture of the morning. Hebrews 4, starting with verse 14. He is the prince of the power of the air, you know. 
Hebrews 4, starting with verse 14. Speaking about Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, which many believe, uh, really unanimously, is the Apostle Paul. He says, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in, to help in the time of need. Now, if we could, which we can't, let's say that in the beginning, if we could make a God in our own image, first of all, he wouldn't be God, he'd be, we'd be God, but if we could do that, and we look for real special qualities, I want him to love me, I want him to you know, answer my prayers, one of the things that we would ask for is compassion. We would ask for the possibility that he could understand me and what I'm going through, not just be this great almighty force that can't understand me as a little human on here on the earth. The God that we serve happens to be the one, the only one that exists, but happens to be, have the qualities of being able to sympathize with us. When I'm going through trials, God can sympathize with me. Isn't that amazing? So not only did he make us, we don't really know all the reasons why he created us, but he also came down in the form of us and lived as us. Man, that is impressive. That is really impressive. So that eighth point, is that he can sympathize with me. He understands me. Whatever you're going through, maybe you came in for the first time and maybe you didn't even plan on coming back. You came in with a friend and you're just like, wow, is this really applicable to me or is it for this congregation? It's God's word. It's applicable to everyone, no matter what your situation and the trial that you're going through. So if I could wrap this up, and let this serve as an encouragement. Well, not only encouragement, but conviction. That's the beauty of God's word. We get convicted at times when we're doing wrong. But we're also encouraged by the Lord. Because he has that standard that he wants us to be able to attain. And he gives us the power to do it. And we look at this. Number one. Part of our prayer life should be without distractions. Those quiet times where we listen to his still, small voice. Two. Whatever cup or trial that we came into this church with this morning, he had the greatest cup. He had the biggest cup. And in that cup was my sins and your sins that he died for. Three, on this side of eternity, the spirit and the flesh will be at war with each other. You know what's amazing? We actually have some limited power that God's given us. We get to decide whether we're going to walk in the spirit or walk in the flesh. It's who we supply. Four, to reflect on what comes out of us. Now, this is where we take the mirror in our private time and we say, so seriously, when I grow through something really bad, what comes out of me? What do other people see in me? Do I start throwing a fit and losing my marbles and, you know, certainly not emulating Jesus in any way? And do I do that repetitively? Or do sometimes, there's some laughs here, sometimes do I have victory in that? And then maybe I've been a Christian for five years and I look back and say, you know what? I'm doing better than I did when I first came to the Lord. So when we're squeezed, what is it that's coming out of us? Is it that infection or is it that sweet smelling fragrance of myrrh? And five, we must always, always come to the conclusion like Jesus did of yielding to the Father's will. 
Do you know, there were some things that Jesus did on earth that he didn't have to. He was God the Son. But what he did was he showed us how to live as believers. He didn't say, here's a bunch of rules, just follow them. And, and when you die and you, you, I see you, you better make sure that you got an A on that test. You know what I'm saying? He actually shows us how to live. So we yield to the Father's will in our life. Six, the, the disciples failed because they were not spiritually prepared. And we've all, including me, must admit that there's been times in our walk where we have failed because we were not spiritually prepared. And then we say to ourselves, gee, I don't want to be in this position again. You know, I'm going to be more prepared next time. We can be overcomers. Seven, the disciples were asleep when they needed to be awake and sober. And my question is, when, right now in our walks, are we more sleepy, are we drowsy, or are we awake and vigilant? Eight, and the last point is, thankfully, we have a God who came down, took my form, and went through life and can sympathize with me personally, identify with me personally because he was tempted, but without sin. He had trials, but without sin. He did not sin as a result of it. And what emanates from that? I've done a lot of counseling, whether it be couples or family or whatever, and no, the biggest thing is for the two parties to understand each other. There needs to be a mutual understanding. Uh, sometimes we offend each other and we, you know, right off the bat, we look at the other person as an enemy. Actually, the three strands meeting was awesome last night. Um, there was a lot of that in there. But, but the bottom line is God understands me. So what's left is for me to understand him. There's not one thing for you here this morning. There's not one thing that God yet has to learn about you. He knows up about your physical makeup. He knows every hair on your head. He's got them numbered. He knows every step you took in your life. He knows how many times your heart has beat up to this point. How many breaths of air that come in and out of your lungs. Isn't that impressive? There's things I don't know about myself that he knows. So the only thing left to do is for us to understand him. And he makes himself understandable. He doesn't make himself capricious or mysterious. He says, this is me. He pours out his heart on these pages of this book. So as we go through this journey of life and we're pressed at times, that we would take these eight points of understanding and apply them to our lives. It'll help make this difficult journey of life as we get older, older becomes more difficult. <laughs> It'll make the journey easier and we'll have a friend to go through it with us, including the dark times. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your word. I have no doubt in my mind that when Jesus saw that he was going to die for our sins, he knew what was coming. He knew the